Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdell. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Matt Pace. He is a writer and the author of a wonderful book, Talk 90s With Me, 23 Unpredictable Conversations with Stars of an Unforgettable Decade. It's an interesting thing and as you'll hear from our conversation to, to look back on a decade that you lived through and to find it becoming almost a historical period. But that's where we are so that's what we're doing and I I'd, uh, I'd highly recommend this book. It's really interesting. Matt has brought together some really eclectic choices of interviewees and contributors. So I think it, I think it's a, a great way of exploring that era and exploring film through the people who made these films. If you enjoy the conversation, please remember to like, subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. John T D R J O N T Y. And if you enjoy this podcast, why don't you give another podcast a try, Cinema Italia, which you can find on all the usual places. Places, uh, all the usual platforms, I should say, Apple, Spotify, etc. It's an exploration of Italian cinema, the whole breadth of Italian cinema from Gialli and Spaghetti Westerns all the way through to Fellini classics and uh, modern day films of Luca Guadagnino and special guests on there from the world of Italian cinema as well as critics and writers who are talking to me about their favourite Italian film. So give it a shot if you haven't already. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. supermarket just now to buy some stuff and it's that thing where you think 
it's hot, but you know, I like the heat. I don't care. I'm okay. You know, I it's, this is <laughs> summer. You know, and then you you suddenly it's like you're walking through some other element that isn't air. You're sort of everything's going slower. Your brain is just, and it's like, oh, okay, okay, maybe it is too hot actually. There's definitely that line where it becomes uncomfortable. I It reminds me of all the years where I, um, because uh, music editor was part of my role also uh, back in the day. So I every time like Lollapalooza and, and Pitchfork and the big music festivals came around in Chicago, uh, I was always going to those. And there were a few times when it gets the the temperature at La Plusa tends to escalate beautifully in tandem with the crowds. So not only are you caught in a swarm and walking like, like you're like doing the pencil dive into a pool, uh, but it's also gotten quite sweaty uh, by the end of the day. But that's there were a lot of reasons why I found it more enjoyable earlier on with sort of the discoveries uh, when they were still booking rock bands not terribly long ago but like i saw royal blood on the smallest stage at the festival uh and that was extraordinary and and that feels like a long time ago now uh but i i just loved um you know there's some good headliners too but small stage discoveries tends to be a little bit more rewarding sometimes i saw nirvana in reading in 91 i think it was uh and they were playing kind of the middle of the afternoon I have some very clear memories about that gig because it was the middle of the afternoon, so they were way down the bill. It was on the main stage, so it was a, a big, but it was way down the bill. And I remember it was, this is how how the sort of audience was like, there was like a three or four deep bunch of people in the mosh pit, but that was it. That was, mosh pit was like three or four deep, and then everybody else was just sitting around sort of like with that sort of relaxed, beery sort of show us what you've got sort of attitude. And then by the end of their gig, I think they were everybody was into it and everybody was up on their feet and everything. But it was definitely not, I mean, it was definitely Nirvana before Nirvana, and it was uh, kind of interesting to see. Yeah, that's that's awesome that you got to be there for that. It's certainly provocative to think of when talking about music to think about sort of why certain bands become what they become but also even to take away the biggest hit and then look at their discography and and recognize like because a lot of even though nirvana happened at the time that it happened of course everyone that breaks big has to have that one song that they hang their hat on hopefully several songs but even even it reminds me of i read uh Pitchfork Sunday review this weekend was of uh, the Wallflowers bringing down the horse and just thinking about album tracks versus singles and and just the the degree to which um, to your point like if if uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit hadn't happened it's Nirvana was a, is a great band but you can see them a lot of people sort of standing around listening being like especially uh, with some of their that earlier stuff that was not exactly like super digestible for the masses necessarily. So like the idea of like culture moving a lot, like sort of moving as one sometimes when something becomes popular, uh, you see the the point I'm sort of (laughs) circling around. No, absolutely. I mean, there were definitely, it was, it was funny because those were the years where we had the Pixies and the Sonic and Sonic Youth. And so there were loads of groups that were doing noisy guitar 
and also sort of quiet, quiet, loud, loud sort of uh, structures that um, that Nirvana sort of based themselves on. And I remember thinking when I saw Nirvana, yeah, they're good, but I've already got the Pixies. Why, why do I need, you know what I mean? And why do I need, uh, you know, what have you got that's more than what I'm already getting? You know, it's a little bit like listening to Coldplay after you've listened to Radiohead. I mean, I'd, I'd listen to Coldplay before I listened to Radiohead, but I'd never do it the other way around. Because once you've listened to Radiohead, why do, why do you need this other British guitar band? We could go down a very deep hole once we start talking about that. So well, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to table my thoughts on Coldplay and Radiohead and Led Zeppelin, Greta Van Fleet. We can do the whole music thing. <laughs> right. Well, let's well let's start with that. It's an interesting point that you started your, your writing career in music, um, in music journalism. Is that correct? So I was fortunate enough that uh, I was doing movies and music at the same time. I started right out of college. I started as an intern at a website called Metromix, which was um, focused on kind of what to do in the city in Chicago. And um, it was something I had read for a long time and, and it was really exciting to get to intern there right out of school. And through a number of, of course, luck and timing are always relevant in life. And I, it just so happened that um, our editor at the time uh, moved on uh, to a new role and the music editor became our editor. Um, and But I'm putting the cart before the horse a little bit uh, because I, when I got there, like many people probably when they get out of school or, or starting their first job, I, I didn't really know what was going to come next by any means. And I wanted to give them every possible reason to want to keep me around. So this was at the time when uh, hours were not quite as defined, let's say. Mm. So the at the cliche of first in, last out has value for a mm. reason. And I, I never left without going around to every part of the staff and saying, is there something I can help you with? I took on every possible, in addition to the the sort of basics of, of an intern in that world of, of calling bars to check their hours and writing sort of basic pieces about events happening at various places. I also said yes to pretty much every writing opportunity. Like a, I, I wrote a, a first person piece about a beer pedicure, even though I had uh, I had no knowledge of, of like spa treatments by any means. I'd never had a pedicure before. I somewhat comically like kind of cut my nails like before I went because I wanted I thought my feet should at least look reasonably good going in there I was like I, I would do no, exactly the same I would do the same I'm not gonna go in there with my gnarly feet and yeah. yeah I appreciate that John so so I it was just a great chance to say yes to everything and and give reason for a three-month internship to go longer than three months. So what started at three then became five and seven and, and sort of kept going mm. uh, because they I wanted to stay and they wanted to keep me around. And the to condense the story a little bit, maybe, let's see, it was probably five months or so into uh, that internship when the Chicago Film Festival, uh, Chicago International Film Festival came around and no one for Metromix or the paper the kind of print version, which was called Red Eye, 
Uh, no one was really owning the movie section at that time. Red Eye was still pretty new, and Metromix had just been using movies content from the Chicago Tribune. So I had spent my entire college career, I, I applied and got on to the, the movie reviewing staff right away uh, at school, eventually uh, was lucky enough to win uh, an award during college for, for that criticism. And I said, hey, if no one even though I'm, I'm still an intern, in theory, I shouldn't really be the one doing this. But if no one else wants to write about the Chicago Film Festival, I'd love to take a crack at adapting my voice and the kind of uh, branding of the site, uh, which was very much meant for kind of 18 to 35 uh, commuters in Chicago. I'd love to write a piece on this. And they said, sure, what, why not? Go for it. And that by asking that one question, by speaking up and, and saying, hey, can I do this? That was the start of what became uh, 11 years as the movie critic for the Chicago Tribune's Red Eye, where I reviewed over 2,000 movies, interviewed almost every anyone you can think of, eventually on video uh, oftentimes. And uh, to your question a few minutes back, I I was both the movie critic and the music editor at the same time. So interviewing uh, artists who are coming through town as well. It's like coffee and cigarettes or beer and chocolate. They go together. You can yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was a natural fit. Yeah, I don't think I know anybody who loves movies who doesn't also read and listen to music and, you know, have other they might not have they might not indulge in the passions, you know, across the board with the same intensity, but there's the it, it would be difficult to I think love mu love mu movies and not love music, for instance, because it's that's such an it, music is such an integral part of movies. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point, and it, it reminds me of. I mean, there I am far from an expert on the way that music is used in film necessarily, but I I sort of I like kind of unexpected things that come along in the way that those overlap. For example, my mind goes to when. Um, a couple of the guys from Manchester Orchestra did the music for Swiss Army Man, uh, which was the film by the Daniels that I much, much, much prefer. By the long to shots. everything, every yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Oh me yes. Too. Um, yeah. But I, I, I really like Manchester Orchestra and the the way that they. Um, if you didn't know that it was those guys from the band, you wouldn't necessarily assume, except for recognizing Andy Hall's voice, maybe. Um, I don't think you would assume that that's who it was um, for the for the music they did for that film. But stuff like that, of course, the Trent, the work that Trent Reznor has done, the film has been pretty fantastic too. But but yeah, that's now, now I'm going to think about if I can think of any exceptions to like people who are really into music that don't care too much about a film or vice versa, but I like that. Uh, it's just that I mean, I don't know if it will necessarily work the other way, but it, 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 if you're into film, film is is a composite art form. You're bringing together music and acting and narrative, and and visual composition. So, you a film critic has to know something about music. Has to know. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, you have to. I don't know. There's an example I could give. This. Um, uh, there are, uh, the New World, Terence Malick uses Mozart and um, and Wagner, so he's using you know 18th and 19th century music to tell a story which is set in the 17th century, 16th, 17th century, and um, King James, so 17th century, and uh, and so there's a real 
anachronism you know and and what does that do so you kind of have you you know i mean if if you're watching it you might you might just think oh that's a nice piece of music and it goes with the thing but it's also it's kind of doing something strange um and that effect would be totally lost if you don't know much about if you don't know anything about music or or for that matter you know i don't know listening to the soundtrack of romeo and plus Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann film, or, or or even Elvis, his his version. You know, you kind of you know you kind of need to have some knowledge of music to appreciate what he's trying to do. Whether he succeeds or not is another question. But um, uh-huh. I mean, I I I, I nail my colours to the mast. I I very much uh, enjoyed Elvis and and Romeo plus Juliet. Uh-huh. I think they're his two most successful films. So what was your take on those? Uh it's been a really long time since I've seen. Uh, his Romeo and Juliet. I I was not a fan of Elvis. Um, oh no! Okay. I, I thought I'm very much in the quite large camp of of people who thought the framing it the way they did was not the way to go. Um, as, in addition to just, I mean, we know you know what you're going to get with a, a Baz Luhrmann film. Usually, it's not like you can say, "Oh, I didn't know it was going to be so uh, <laughs> hectic." Um, but even still. Um, I, I thought it was um, dizzying and sloppy uh, and just needed sort of a, an overhaul from a storytelling perspective. You, it's hard. It was hard for me to watch that movie and uh, not just be like, uh, what, why did you do it this way? You, you, you didn't, you know, you didn't need to do it this way. I, I guess there are, you know, points for not just doing the obvious thing, but surely there was like option three. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. I mean, well, we and we won't even go into the details of Tom Hanks' <laughs> ac- accents and, and what have you. Um, let's get to the let's get to the book because I, I I really there's there are two really interesting uh, things that, that popped into my head as I was reading was I was reading it, but one of the things was um, the '90s as a decade, which is what your uh, where your interviewees are sort of working and their their main sort of they come to prominence in that decade um the 90s is a decade as well as sort of a sort of beginning to grow as a decade of of that we can separate off and think about cinematically M- maybe in a way say you know the first decade of the, like the noughties haven't yet maybe just need we just need a bit of time for it to percolate or but the 90s seem to be acquiring a real identity what why why do you think that is i mean is it just our distance in time to it or is there something else sure yeah i appreciate that jenna i think that's an important question and i mean there are a lot of reasons why i wanted to write this book it probably starts with simply that the 90s were when i first became really excited about pop culture diving into just everything that i could watch and and certainly turning back the clock sometimes too, but but there was, and every so often you'll see people posting like the, the marquee of a theater from that time mm. and marveling at not only how much was coming out at once, but the, the variety and that there was something with every rating and just something for, for anyone who wanted to go. And it, it seems so uh, like quaint almost <laughs> to, to look at it that way. Uh, I'm not sure if that's even the right word for it, but it's it was, we didn't know what we had exactly mm. at the time because we certainly don't have that now. And to be able to go back to that era 
And certainly anyone who is going to do a book like Talk 90s with me, where I, I spoke with with 23 people from movies and shows uh, like Ariana Richards, Karen Parsons, Tom Everett Scott, Billy West, uh, Dougie Doug. <laughs> anyone who's going to write that book is going to probably connect with a totally different group of people and not not because of you're always at the whim of, of who says yes of course but this is absolutely filtered through my own experience i i cast a wide net there were plenty of people i reached out to that um were not available or not interested in participating mm-hmm. but i wanted to follow through on work that i uh thought was still worth talking about um, performances that still felt interesting, but also people that I s- actually wanted to talk to and thought that there was a lot of uh, material, well, a lot of kind of stones unturned. I very much, I mean, the one of the things I believe the most when it comes to covering entertainment as a journalist is that every interview should try to be as new as possible. There's really just no point in going in there and asking the same questions that everyone's already asked. You may as well just run a wire piece um, if you're getting the same material. So while maybe some people don't like doing the research or or just don't have time, don't think that's necessary, I always, in my time at Red Eye and afterwards, d- delighted in reading, watching, listening to everything that I possibly could. So to then get access to um, these people for conversations that lasted an average of 60 to 75 minutes, I was able to get to like a fun, thought-provoking and kind of surprisingly uh, open and intimate place that is able to really fill in what you're talking about of of what we had in the 90s of, of material that might be for kids, um, but is uh, exploring it in a way that reached people in a particular way. Even like, I mean, I'm not saying that Little Big League is the best movie of all time, but it has a charm that, I mean, they certainly don't make kids sports movies much anymore. Um, And to be able to ask some fun questions about the implications of of a child manager uh, in ways that haven't been approached much, um, but also talk about with Luke Edwards um, for that film about, you know, the way that a lot of kids movies touch on a, a character's death in that film, his grandfather dies, which allows him to take over the Minnesota twins. And, and also think these interviews allowed me to even process things from my childhood that I, in ways that I hadn't even considered before. The idea of putting those elements in movies for kids and then asking like, well, what conversations are, peop- are the filmmakers hoping happen on the way out of that movie? Same with, I mean, Luke Edwards, we talked about Newsies also, which is loaded with content uh, and, and narrative that you wouldn't think like a nine-year-old is going to be coming out like, so tell me more about the way that newspapers used to be 100 years, 80, 100 years ago, and like, the union strikes and that sort of like that's yeah. not really what people are saying when they're coming out of like the Paw Patrol movie as much. Exactly. I mean that that's something. And uh, uh, Free Willy as well is another one which uh, you ent- interview for, and, and that's another uh, example of a film that I remember Free Willy being hugely uh, successful at the time. And and that's what I like about uh, the people you've chosen and the people you've approached is that um, there is a kind of 90s here which isn't necessarily uh, the, the the 
the matrix uh or or the which was right at the end of the 90s as well so it's a little bit of a, a an outlier perhaps um but but free willies arguably you know one of the most successful films of that era definitely yeah that's a great point i i think you could certainly i mean i don't i didn't try to reach out to people like tom hanks uh i, <laughs> I didn't think and and not because of Elvis. I, I believe I saw Elvis after the book was completed. Um, but yeah, the, that's absolutely one of the great things about the 90s. And that even applies. I wrote the book I wrote before Talk 90s with me was a statistical analysis of Say by the Bell, uh, where I counted Zach Morris's lies uh, and and analyzed it episode to episode, season to season, and, and talked to a couple dozen people involved in that show also. And some of those were... Uh, guest stars just who are on an episode or two but that's kind of of the same mindset of when something really connects with people the the fans and the people that that think about it and care about it and then it means something to them uh it's not only about kind of the top line and there can be a conversation to be had with uh johnny dakota or nurse jennifer for for the say by the bell example but also ernie reyes jr about teenage mutant ninja turtles 2 or Shannon Elizabeth for American Pie or or William Daniels, Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. I definitely wasn't. I wanted to connect with people who were important to the era and of their specific movies. Uh, Gabrielle Anwar, who was a big deal in the 90s for a while. She was she was absolutely everywhere because of the poster for Scent of a Woman, I remember. And, and that scene, that was the scene. If you never saw Scent of a Woman, you saw the scene of her dancing the tango with Al Pacino. Exactly. Yeah, that's such a good example. And and of course, she had a number of, of starring roles, too. Uh, and I had I, Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken was a movie I had always known about and never even got to until preparing for the interview. So some of this was even catching up for myself. Mm. Um, but but yeah, Sense of a Woman. Exactly. Like that was a time when scene even one scene could be like part of the cultural conversation. And of course, so much has changed since the 90s of what gets made and what doesn't and how people process and discuss film versus TV and, and that whole conversation that has been had, but still has areas that are, are worth uh, talking about, too. But but yeah, that's that's a great example of, of a person I was so excited to talk to. She also has a phenomenal personality and was so open uh, and did a, a, just a great job in, in our conversation. But that whether you were the star of the movie or you were part of a really important scene or just having a career for a couple of years, I mean, I, I was I was a little bit too old for Power Rangers, but I really like Felicity. And the fact that Amy Jo Johnson was in both of those, which you can't find two shows more opposite from each other, uh, just to be able to to talk to people like that, that that really, I do think, if you ask people who are the, like, the most memorable performers from the 90s, they might go to Hanks, Tom Cruise, Wesley Snipes, Julia Roberts, the people who became massive and and, mm often stay that way but i think if you challenge them to not just go to the obvious there will be kind of an almost unlimited list of, like you said i mean jason james richter is doing some smaller parts now it's he didn't become tom hanks but free willy was a franchise <laughs> it was absolutely enormous in the early 90s and and to turn the clock back i think it's important to not act like that stuff doesn't matter anymore because of what did or didn't happen to the people involved. 
Yeah, and I mean, it's that thing of like, yeah, there's going to be, there's a churn and there's going to, stuff is going to get left by the wayside, even hugely popular stuff. Arnold Bennett was a best-selling novelist at the turn of the century. He sold many more copies than James Joyce, but nobody knows, nobody reads those books anymore. Um, but but it is still important to go back and, and and say, hey, people were actually reading Arnold Bennett and not Joyce back then and not Virginia Woolf. And, you know, what, we, we sort of need to be aware of, of, of these moments. One of the things I love about the, this book and, and why... Uh, and I, it sort of leads on to what I'd like to ask you a little bit later about your interviewing is is that you're asking these people not just about you know what do you remember the roles or what how was it to make the film or anything but you're actually talking about you know you you ask each of them you know what is what are you nostalgic about in the 90s so it's kind of it does have this sort of um, almost like a sociology uh, experiment if you like that that you're, you're getting a collective memory of the decade. Certainly. Yeah. And I, I was so happy that I decided to start every interview the same way, uh, asking what they missed just about anything from that time. Mm. And then also asking about a movie or a show or a, a band or something that they just loved at the time or that that stuck with them. Um, because I, I think, you know, the, there's that that inherent warmth to nostalgia and looking back on things that happened to us when we were younger. And I very much, I mean, there's a reason why these are called conversations. I mean, mm. uh, interviews, but they they were meant to be conversations that, you know, I have on the back cover. It's it's meant to feel like getting a drink with, with someone or like a long phone call that you had back in the 90s and probably don't have that often anymore. But, but by starting out each uh, conversation with those questions, it definitely... I mean, as sort of, it's impossible not to sound trite when saying this, but it definitely establishes just like talking as people, not interviewer and star. And and that's important to uh, identify. People, you got a good sense of when you're talking to anyone in any context in your life of kind of what we, what vibe you got from them, what they seem to be interested in, how they listen. Everyone should know that the best material comes from the follow-up. The questions are important and the follow-up is even more important. Um, and starting off that way uh, was certainly interesting to hear a lot of people talk about that they miss being less reachable. <laughs> Starbucks. They miss the early days of Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. Go, browsing Blockbuster, buying CDs at Best Buy. Because, you know, it makes me think of like, we we personalize our own experience, of course, that you think about, oh, when this movie came out, I was 12 or something. But you also have to think about this actor was 19 or, or 23 mm. or something. They were also going through something and seeing the world a certain way. I, I was very aware in, in working on this book that as a kid, especially processing pop culture, it, it like didn't even feel like something that was made by people. It seems like mm. this magical product that just wills itself into existence in the universe, but you don't think about that it's informed by everything that goes into why a, a movie turns out the way that it does. So being able to, and I certainly recognize and appreciate the way that many people look back on things from their childhood in, in almost a, a glass case and and don't really want to poke it. it it they connect to the memory they connect with what they were going through at that time and, and what something meant to them then i'm always 
I feel that I am always able to be a little bit more objective than that and and separate two things. Um, I mean, American Pie, I I can absolutely be honest and say that I laughed hysterically when I saw that movie in the theater in 1999. It was hugely popular and successful for a reason. But massive, massive it, franchise as well. Yeah, but it was one of the movies discussed in this book that you can't talk about that now without being able to bring a modern sensibility to how that gets perceived. Um, so it was great to get to talk to Shane Elizabeth about kind of what was on her mind at the time and what was or wasn't on the movie's mind at the time. It's not meant to wag a finger at anything, but I also think it's it's possible to be uh, to appreciate something and not ignore the the necessary elements of the the conversation. I didn't I didn't necessarily want to approach kind of only uh, examples like that that uh, our perceptions have changed because there are also ways that the, we look at things that have changed over time, not necessarily because like things have changed for the better in society, but right. even asking Tom Everett Scott of that thing you do about any parallels he sees between the messages of that film and La La Land, which he was also in, uh, which is something that honestly didn't even occur to me until preparing for uh, the interview with him. And it was something that he had never been asked about or thought about either. So mm. um, ways to bring kind of new perspective and new thought doesn't always mean a, an indictment <laughs> or mm. something like that. It's just bringing um, something that you... I love the opportunity to think about something in a new way. And this wasn't meant to be a book of essays of, of me putting my own points out there. I, I was so thankful for the opportunity to get to talk about a lot of things with uh, these people. And it's a pretty great thing when someone says, oh, I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, exactly. My God, Tom's, Tom Hanks runs through this conversation like uh, <laughs> like uh, writing through a, a stick of rock. Because, um, of course, uh, I think was that his only film that he directed? That thing you do, or is he has he tried his hand at he, anything else? He directed Larry Crown also. Oh right, yeah, with Julia Roberts. Yes, yeah, good, yeah, good, good call. But I would never have. I for some reason I would have thought Larry Crown was directed by Ron Howard or someone. I'm not sure why, but I I would never have that thing you do. I have that really deeply in the Tom Hanks directed bucket. Um, no, I mean, that 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 is that there's a couple of things that come out of that that uh, I, I want to go back to. But first of all, I have to ask you the question. What are you nostalgic about for the 90s? <laughs> well, John, I, I don't know if there's anything. How old were you in the 90s, by the way, Matt, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so I was I was born in the early '80s. So right. when all when these like kids sports movies were coming out, I was like the the great age to be seeing the Sandlot and and Rookie of the Year and Little Big League and things like that. Um, so I I certainly miss. I mean, every everything that that came up in the conversations, I I felt too uh, with as much as it applied to me. Um, not the days before social media. Certainly the days when when people felt more present and less reachable, all the all the things that many, many people know and, and feel about um, that time. There, there are benefits to technology, but there are there are also a lot of downsides, too. And and I mentioned looking for CDs or, or movies at, at Best Buy or something, the new younger generations won't 
appreciate that as much probably or or may not care although maybe some will want to be a part of that type of thing as much as they can but the ability to actually make a choice of what you're investing in um and purchasing and, and making as part of your collection i absolutely and i know i'm not the first person to, to point this out here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Really is makes a difference especially when you're young about the things that you feel are kind of a part of you mm. um and there are ways in which especially when you're a kid and and, and loving a band or or you go see some a movie in the theater and you feel like it really speaks to you for some reason it's i wouldn't say that it's necessarily part of your identity but you want to feel seen in those moments and the the fluidity of of consuming and acquire of experiencing things digitally i just i i've i have two young kids and it's hard not to wonder how what role pop culture will play um for kids now when what's being made is so different and the way that you are acquiring it is so different and it, um to feel like I, like like the only thing that people have to talk about probably is Iron Man 12 or whatever it is that came out that week, as opposed to that little movie that had a medium budget and wasn't trying to make a billion dollars, but was Brady PG or whatever. I, I think it's, I guess it will be a good thing if something, if it's an opportunity to play outside and <laughs> do anything that is separate from screens, it doesn't like my own childhood experience doesn't have to be the way kids now experience it. But I also think part of why I responded to it so much is because of the learning mm. that can happen, not just mm. about how to make these things, but also what what's being expressed. And that very much informed a lot of these conversations, as you saw in the book of just thematically what mm. are we trying to gather i mean even to talk to megan kavanaugh about the complete the night and day difference between of how her character is treated in a league of their own where seeing that movie again as an adult you really appreciate the way that sexism is is being and misogyny is being called out right um, whereas i don't even think i recognized that when i was 10 or 11 or whatever but then she's in robin Hood men in tights also um and her character is the butt of the joke coming mm. from a completely different place. And and that's not something that I've seen discussed anywhere um, and isn't something that billions of people are, are, have been waiting for necessarily. But if you, if you've seen those movies, you see where I'm coming from. And it was really 
And she had a lot to say about that. So just those, when I talk about kind of bringing something new to nostalgia and those those rocks that haven't been turned over, that was uh, part of what made this such a great opportunity. Yeah, I think people have got too many, they've become too precious about nostalgia. I mean, it's 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 something that is valuable. And I, I have my own sacred cows that I love to, and my own happy places I like to go to. But ultimately, if they are destroyed by knowing more, then they're kind of not worth having, in my opinion. You know, I mean, I love James Bond and he's racist and he's sexist and he uh, is uh, homophobic to some degree, despite the fact that he's quite obviously gay. <laughs> I mean, the guy goes around in tailored suits drinking martinis all the time. Uh, so so I but I can uh, J- the James Bond that I love is resilient enough to withstand all that criticism and withstand it all and, and sort of become about that as well you know so that the new James Bonds that you're watching they're constantly struggling with those questions rather than just denying them flat out so yeah I I I there's a there's a tendency today to read people especially on Twitter and and social media I don't think there's any serious film criticism that does this but people you know berating studios for going in a woke direction with this that, that or the other and it's just such a boneheaded idea that there is such a thing as woke and there is such a thing as you know ultimately if you cast a woman in this role or that role or someone of color in this role or that role and your whole thing falls to pieces then i, I think it's your fragility rather than the thing itself that is the problem Absolutely. And I think it, a lot of it is just about being willing to be intellectually curious. Yeah. And that, and that doesn't, that by no means takes away the fun. It's just the world isn't binary. Things are not simple. It's okay to have multiple feelings, multiple thoughts exist at once and, and want to follow that thread. Like, I mean, it reminds me of every time I reviewed one of the horrible Adam Sandler comedies, like like Jack and Jill or Just Go With It or something or Blended, you get a, a bunch of emails who are saying, oh, come on, can't you take a joke? As if the existence of something labeled as a comedy makes it completely, you know, free from, it doesn't mean you should be analyzing it as if it were something far more compelling and thought-provoking, but... There are jokes that are making fun of a group of people and there are jokes that aren't. And it doesn't really take that much effort to see that you are. Some people I think are kind of willfully ignoring that side of it. And everything is subjective. People like what they like. They laugh what they laugh at. Sometimes people laugh at something that they also know they shouldn't be laughing at. And there are a whole wide spectrum of reactions we can have to things like that. I'm not going to peel off an Adam Sandler filmography band-aid because of course there are plenty of there are good dramatic performances, et cetera, et cetera. But the to your point, the refusal to uh, or or maybe just inability to kind of keep those two plates spinning at one time, even even with the the Say by the Bell conversation, to go back to that whole series and see, hey, some of some of these episodes actually hold up really well or and are just as fun, if not more fun than I realized when I was a kid. But also, even if you're enjoying some of that, you need to see that if if Slater and Jesse are having a conversation uh, and he holds up his fist, threatening her, you 
it doesn't ruin your childhood to look at that now and say that wasn't that's not good they should not have done that i'm glad we can now see that was bad yeah yeah absolutely and there's a long history of domestic violence being treated as a joke and you know to the moon you know i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna what is it the honeymooners i think or the uh mm-hmm. archie archie bunker the um you know it's it's the yeah i mean we, we used to call uh in america you used to uh call an undergarment a wife beater for crying out loud i mean it, it's it's right there in the in the language and it's yeah yeah absolutely no uh i i think that that's that's what makes things fascinating i mean time everything changes so we go back to things in the art to to sort of enjoy them for themselves and for what they do. But I mean, I watch old films to see the sixties. I watch old films to see the seventies, the eighties and, and alas, the nineties are now a historical period. I, I personally, I still think of the nineties as like last week, but it's now a historical Mm -hmm. period, you know, know. (laughs) I mean, it's got to that point where people say, Oh, that look is so nineties. I'm like, what, what's a nineties look? I don't even understand that, but it is, you know, it exists now absolutely and and part of sometimes when there's something where you that you don't know how you feel about it that can be good mm. i mean i i moderate uh discussions for uh, a couple of movie clubs throughout the year and i'm always looking to find uh movies whether they're new or not as new that exists somewhere in that um a point where people have to talk it out and even if by the end of it we're all still a little bit unsure about something um or maybe their opinion changed a little bit throughout the conversation and then even to to look at at the book and something like i talked with devin retray buzz McAllister from home alone home alone is one of the biggest hits uh of the 90s and yet to watch it now it's hard not to be stunned at like the like the kind of Looney Tunes-ness of the violence and just how much more Kevin uh, perpetrates than, than Marv or Harry do. Um, and then trying to reconcile like where your head was at at the time with how it seems now. And then, I mean, the fact that they released a Home Sweet Home Alone, I think was the title of the new one that was unwatchable that that only helped crystallize that this doesn't quite work anymore or maybe just not in the way that they did it but but i think it's really it can be fascinating to try to figure that out for yourself of of mixing those old feelings with those new thoughts and and maybe that's uncomfortable for people and i i don't take that away from anyone that you maybe don't want to complicate um your fondness for something you want to just be able to uh look back and enjoy it uh but but it's also again these these were real people who were making the art too so talking to billy west of of doug and futurama and space jam who who was as honest as anyone i i, I spoke with about mm his feelings about animation and like the his roles and and kind of putting heart into things or or, or like the very unique experience of a voice actor i i just think people can love what what they love and and you got to personalize your own pop cultural experience a lot of why i was excited to go back to the 90s for this book was both because of my own experience of when I saw this stuff, but also certainly the quantity of material coming out now 
we're not being bombarded with a hundred movies a year that are that are worth processing this way or that I think kids are going to be experiencing the same way. Whereas when I think back, if you were to to ask me what were some movies that are not covered in this book that that were impactful to me in the 90s, to be able to say like everything from school ties to quiz show to boogie nights to even even a movie I don't necessarily I don't have any particular feelings about blank check as a, a movie, but just mm. like the fact that movies like that existed um, or that I remember being on a cruise ship and seeing like the same part of true lies every time, mm. <laughs> just like you, your memories from, from a certain part of your life and the pop culture you consume are going to be fixed. And it's impossible not to be curious about what people of that age are going to be consuming now and what effect that will have on them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, I, th- I find that, yeah, that, I, I find that transition. It's interesting. You mentioned true lies because like that transition from the eighties like, action blockbuster. And then by the end of the, the nineties, you're into sort of Keanu Reeves uh, and sort of a far different version of, of sort of masculinity as well. That's a, that's a really that's a, that's a really interesting point. Um, when you uh, when you set about writing this book, your um, and, and and you you just said uh, earlier about how how surprising some of some of the answers were for you. What was the, what was the biggest surprise that that uh, sort of changed your mind or, or changed the way you viewed the the nineties? Yeah, I mean that's that's an interesting way to frame that. I, I would say the biggest surprise, this is a little bit broader than than mm. what your question was, but I think my biggest surprise was just where each conversation went and how far it was able to go. Because if every time I had gotten on the phone with someone, they had said, you know, I, I have 20 minutes. And no matter how well this goes, I, I just I only have 20 minutes. Oh. That that was exactly not the point of the book. The whole, the whole point was being able to, like I said, feel like you're having a drink and just f- talking about things in a way that, I mean, I had never met any of these people. These were phone conversations without any defined length of time, but you prepare extensively and, and listen. And I think, I think as an interviewer, I recognized that it was something that if I had tried to do something like this 10 years earlier, it would have been a completely different book mm. because like anyone with anything they do, you, you hopefully learn and adapt how you approach things. And I, I, the ability to kind of bring up some sensitive questions or things that might feel awkward. There are, there are so many kind of, forks in the road in an interview or a conversation where you can either like move on um, because either the clock is ticking or you want to get to the next thing, but you have to like follow your own curiosity. And I would say, you know, to your question, my, my delight and gratitude and surprise was that 94% of the the conversations in the book, anytime I kept following a thought down a road or or kind of split it off into something else. I mean, the, the subjects were right there with me and mm. able to, and there's also a benefit in reflecting on things that happened to a long time ago versus promoting something that's happening now. So people's ability to be honest about, you know, whether it's uh, Karen Parsons talking about um, how the cast handled 
their involvement in sort of the the storylines of that show while also uh, not having a, a, a lot of black writers, you know, working on things like that. Or, I mean, Tom Everett Scott being honest about some of the choices he made after breaking out in that thing you do. Um, I mean, Gabrielle Anwar, even, I mean, her her father is an acclaimed editor and he edited her documentary called Sexology. That's That's interesting. That's something that, you wouldn't automatically is not everyone would have their um family member their parents edit the movie about themselves um ex- exploring elements of, of sexuality but and, and that those are just a couple examples even even when it's basically you can't ignore every interviewer should know you just because something is uncomfortable if uh if it's something that like a reader would be wondering about even if it's bringing up to Jason James Richter at the end of of that conversation, you have to talk about Michael Jackson when it comes to Free Willy. He was part of that. I mean, even in the Dougie Doug interview, if you saw at the end of that, like after we talked about Cool Runnings and Operation Dumbo Drop and his sitcom and a bunch of things, I said, we're at that time where it's there's no good way to bring it up. Before I could even get to the question, he said Cosby. And it's not to, you don't want to bring something up for no reason. You need to have an actual question and feel like there's something new that you can gather from that. But the ability to be curious and understanding and I mean, empathy is an important word and it probably gets thrown a lot around um, a lot now. But being able to I mean, this is not I was so lucky to do all of the interviews that I did um, in my time at Red Eye. And when you have 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 to 40 minutes sometimes with, with people, um, that is a privilege. And I love making it the best of that always. Um, talking to people like Brie Larson, Will Ferrell, LeBron James, even when they made the documentary about him. But to not have that ticking clock and be mm-hmm. able to just let the conversation unfold as opposed to knowing that you have a certain number of pages um, in a newspaper that you're trying to, the daily paper you're trying to fill later that week or something um, versus my goal here just being, I want each of these interviews to be maybe 10 to 15 pages in a book. It's going to feel long, but not too long. We're only going to include the good material and let's see what happens. Um, the fact that that played out as successfully as it did um, was absolutely a testament to the great subjects that I spoke with. And, and I'm proud that I felt like by that point in my career that I've been doing this for so long, I I knew how to execute this in a way that I wouldn't have when I was younger. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. It's an, a, a fact that I, I sort of does bounce along throughout the, the, the book, which is, you know, because of what has happened in more recent years, we are looking back on the 90s and some of these people, as you say, the Michael Jackson uh, relationship with the Free Willy, star the uh uh bill cosby's uh influence um you know that there are these people who i kind of always feel the you know the the stuff that happened it it sort of stretches into the 80s as well uh with cory feldman going through the it, it it's that i think it goes back to to sort of make it into a deeper point perhaps it goes back to um this idea you mentioned earlier that this these are not artifacts which are sort of being down onto earth by aliens they're made by human beings who who are dealing with some shit you know and are dealing with industry and they're dealing with stuff which is going on 
in their lives that we have no access to. And now we kind of do have access to. And, you know, I mean, American Pie is not just sort of a bit squirm-inducing because the, the the parameters of comedy have moved on. I mean, I remember watching that when I was, uh, when it first came out and thinking this is a kind of refreshing version of the American sex comedy, the the, the Porkies, the, you know, the National Lampoon's Animal House. Um, it, it, no, was it, it, I wouldn't have, have uh, you know, taken my feminist girlfriend to see it. Absolutely not. But it, it wasn't something that I, I felt terrible about going to see. And 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 the and some of these films, you know, get reclaimed. You know, there's Showgirls, which is a, a you know uh, was absolutely trounced when it first came out, is now considered something of a cult masterpiece. So it's certainly and and sometimes it's just about putting an idea out there and seeing what someone thinks about something, not trying to identify it as right or wrong, but just to cure it. Like for American Pie, talking with Shannon Elizabeth about, you know, I, I said. Eight years after American Pie, we had Superbad. And then less than a decade after that, we had Booksmart. You know, how how much do we feel like the movies that are being made about teenagers in the U.S. specifically, is that kind of a reflection of where, of how people are being raised and where people's heads are at, you know, and, and just trying to go into things that, that we're wondering about. Um, but you also reminded me, and I want to read this quote so I get it right, I talked with Hill Harper, um, who was in a lot in the 90s, um, uh, in particular, a couple of Spike Lee movies like Get on the Bus and He Got Game. Um, and he had talked he talked in our conversation about um, not that he really, really didn't like Black Klansmen. And and the, a quote that I pulled out from my interview with him, which he said, he said, it's tough because when I look back at the work of the 90s and all the different filmmakers, the different voices, I feel like in certain ways we were further along then than now. And he was saying that in the context of kind of movies of, about social issues and the way that things are explored and discussed, because I, I wanted to talk about when when movies come out that are trying to make us learn about the, the world outside the theater if the only people that are ever going to see those are the ones who are in theory, at least kind of mostly on board with everything that is being said in the first place, like how do we evaluate the impact of these things when 30 years goes by and the problems have not, some things have not gotten better, um, which is, is a challenging kind of cultural context to put that work into. And it doesn't take anything away from the quality of some great films to say that they didn't change society. Um, but when something is also, in theory, trying to exist beyond just the film world, it's it's sobering to recognize that no matter how great that work is, certain things um, obviously take a lot more than that to change. Um, but then, then you have to sort of wonder about like, well, does that play any, how much does that play into what gets made at all? Of course, it oftentimes just goes back to sort of the financial component, but... Um, but there's a lot to the way that art plays um, a role in a lot of ways that we experience our lives, both in what we want to laugh at, but also how we want to process the people around us and the issues going on. So I I was really happy that by casting a wide net for a book like this, you can touch on 
things that are heavy, but also things that are light and really just go again, like the mix of fun and thought provoking is something that movies of the 90s were able and willing to give us. So the book had to reflect that too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talk about Free Willy, you talk about entertaining children's movie, but you're also talking about animal rights. You're also talking about environmentalism. I mean, those uh, and, and talking about social issues and how they're addressed in film these days. You sort of, you, I'm, I'm scratching my head to think of sort of an environmental, you know, what have we got? Avengers Endgame, where the environmentalist is the guy who wants to destroy half of the universe's population. You know, in fairness, it's not, it's not exactly all Venom, where the environmentalist is the guy who's the baddie. Um, it's not like we've gone, as you say, two steps forward, one step back, perhaps. Um, Did what, you see, don't, sorry. Oh, sorry to cut you off, John. Did you see yeah. Don't Look Up? The Adam McKay. Yes, film. yes, yes. That what comes did, to mind as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought it was a fairly successful political satire, but it I don't know. I, I Adam McKay's if that's what we've we've got to settle for in terms of satire, then then satire is not in good in a good shape, I don't think. It's a bit too it's 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 not it's not savage enough for me. Yeah, it's 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 interesting that people were both complained that it wasn't it was both it wasn't subtle, but it also wasn't savage either. Um, yeah, but I think I don't mind it not being subtle. I don't know. I have no problem with it, you know satire. On the contrary, I think satire has a absolute license to be unsubtle. That's that's kind mm -hmm. of its point. You know, it's a sledgehammer. It's not a scalpel. You know, or it's both. Sure. Yeah, it's it's hard when it seems like some I think that movie felt like trying to approach something important, but that didn't was so sort of front and center that maybe it didn't feel like as much of a risk compared to like a movie like Four Lions, mm. which which if you if you tell someone about that, they're like, wait, they they made a comedy about what? <laughs> like, really? Are you sure? Um, that's that's a movie that takes risks. Um, or even sort of the the playfulness of, of like in the loop, um, which was one of the best comedies of the last twenty years, um, fifteen years now. That's that's existing in a very different world than than Don't Look Up. But I, I thought that was still pretty funny and a little a, a bit better than the conversation maybe gave it credit for. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. I think it got. I do think it got a, a, a kicking. And as far as Adam McKay movies go, which don't start Will Ferrell, it was is one of his better ones. Interestingly, that I think what it was trying for was was something which was like Doctor Strangelove, which is a you know you can look at nuclear annihilation and the madness comes comes over you even as everyone seems to be playing it straight. Whereas I felt everybody put their comedy pants on and, and you know, straight actors trying to play comedy. I, I don't think Meryl Streep or... But interestingly, Armando Iannucci, who had a hand in, uh, who directed um, In the Loop and had a hand in Four Lions as well, I think, he comes from very much the same stable as Chris Morris has recently signed on to write and direct a stage version of Dr. Strangelove. So that's, uh, there you go, you see, there's that's the satirist that we need uh, there. And he's, re what did he do as well? He did Veep as well, was his... Uh, yeah. TV show, brilliant. Um, so we're coming to the end of our of our conversation. There's two questions I want to ask before we wind up, though. One is, um, already I think you've given anybody who's thinking, a writer who's thinking of going into interviewing, you've given several 
cardinal lessons throughout this conversation. One would be do your preparation. Yeah, make sure you know your stuff. Uh, the second would be, you know, to 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 listen and to to be sort of open open about where the conversation leads you. Um, what other things would you would you recommend for anybody who's who sort of maybe maybe hasn't interviewed someone and they're a bit nervous and they're uh, you know what would you suggest? I love that question, John. That's awesome. I think it's something that you have to be willing to learn, um, and also continue to evolve the way that you approach things and you recognize that a lot is happening at once. I mentioned the importance of, of asking the question that you think people are going to be wondering about, which sort of suggests thinking about like who's going to read this. That is part of it, but it's also, in my opinion, about bringing your own voice to things. You are not, I was not the story by any means, but the more you just ask things the way that everyone else does or the way that you've read before um the more you just it's not interesting that i don't that wouldn't be interesting to me i don't think that would be interesting to read i think the ability to kind of simultaneously um personalize but also not have a kind of myopic view of things um is showing that you are um interested in how other people feel too but recognizing that you're filtering it through your own experience so i think the ability to um have that perspective i think really informed and and was a um a reason why these conversations played out um as long and as successfully that they did i mean any any interviewer will tell you about that you continually learn about listening um and it's not just about the patience to give people space to talk but also i mean i i think back on old interviews that i did and there are times when i wish that i would have approached things differently or um let something unfold differently because this book was a unique chance to to have the time to ask questions that sometimes led to longer answers and then hear things within that 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 pointedly you know sent us down another corner um whereas when you don't have the time for that or um any reason why you just aren't in the place in your mind to know kind of where to take that next um so i mean i, I think anyone wants to look back on the way that they do things and say i <laughs> it's just like the nostalgia for for what you watched or, or listened to, or, you know, I, I appreciated what was on my mind at the time and what I knew and what I didn't know, but I have learned some things from then and I'm proud of how it went and I did my best and maybe something will happen 10 years from now that I'll look back on this and say, oh, now there's a little something, maybe I, if I could do it now, I would do it a little bit differently, but that, that interest in self-editing I mean, I think there are probably a lot of people who get into journalism or or writing anything who are like, oh, I'm just gonna knock something out. My editor will fix it. No, your editors are there to help you, but you are the first person in charge of making what your own work good. And if you don't, if you're not absolutely ruthless um, uh, about how you think about your own material and willing to look at it again and continually work that muscle, um, that is the only way that after you've been doing it for 15 to 20 years, you can then say, wow, I, because I did this so much and cranked out so much for so long and I learned so much and none of like it was deliberate, 
but the things I learned were not on purpose. I was just trying my absolute best all the time. Um, and that's how you get to a point where you can talk to someone for 80 minutes and go back to it and say, wow, humbly, this is all not only usable, but new and thoughtful and entertaining and exactly what I was hoping for. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that it's, it's really interesting advice. I love the, the thing about the editors as well is like you, you have to make yourself, you have to make sure that the people above you uh, or the people between you and the readers are doing the least possible work. You know, if, if your editor is reading your copy and going, fine, up it goes, filed, ready to publish, and they don't have to touch it, they'll love you. <laughs> and, and you'll have the benefit of seeing what you've written out there rather than half of what you've written and things that the editor has had to fix and change around and add because you didn't do your job. So I think that's, that's really good, really good advice for anybody out there. I really, really appreciate that. That Matt, I think there's loads of pearls of wisdom there. Um, it's so great talking to, to, to you and, and, and hearing your experience, but final question has to be, of course, um, film books, what film book would you recommend for our listeners? Yeah, I was I was thinking what I want to mention. Admittedly, I am someone that I I like reading um, memoirs from people. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I just started Minka Kelly's book, um, but the one I wanted to shout out in particular was um, "Run Towards the Danger" um, by Sarah Polly, uh, which I read last fall. And oh yes, I've read some excerpts of this. It is it is phenomenal. Um, she's just. I've always found her really um, thoughtful and, and impressive. And her book was even, I, I had reasonably high expectations going into that book and it, it met or exceeded all of them. I would, I would say it was um, uh, among the best books I, I've read of, of the sort in the last several years, for sure. So if anyone hasn't um, checked that one out yet, that would definitely be the one I would point to. Excellent. That's a brilliant recommendation. Yes, I've read the excerpts. Obviously, they made headlines of in terms of her making uh, Baron Munchausen with mm-hmm. uh, Terry Gilliam. But um, I've always liked her films. I've always, well, yeah, loved loved her uh, uh, some of the films that I've seen that she's directed. And um, and she's uh, you know she's one of those voices that that is out there that that is uh, that's definitely one I'll, I'm going to have to put on my reading list. Well, thank, thanks so much for coming and talking to me, Matt. I really appreciate it, and, and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much for having me, John. This is wonderful. Really appreciate your time and interest. 